All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. Good to be home. I had a crazy day yesterday. Um, I had the honor of being the only non-family member at uh, Christina's funeral yesterday in Sedona. And uh, just the incredible privilege of just sharing with the family about um, our great father who grieves with us in our pain and who our, our Savior who has come to redeem us from sin and death and to uh, create a new heaven and a new earth where death will be no more. And just an incredible opportunity to just love on them and, and also just to share, um, I think, from our perspective as a community, what Christina meant to us. And um, as Rick and I were talking uh, afterwards, um, he said, don't tell them just about the tears that were shed. He said, tell them that what really happened here, and he's, he's right about this, he's not just you know revisionist history kind of thing, but he said, when someone runs the race well, people notice. People, it, it, it makes an impact. And, and I can honestly say, Every single person there just talked about the incredible impact that Christina had upon their life. And Christina had no degree. She didn't have special talents. She wasn't uh, an accomplished person in, by worldly standards. She wasn't. But she was faithful to her God. She was faithful to Jesus, and she wanted to know him. And she wanted you to know that. I shared this yesterday, actually, um, but Christina just was so in awe of Jesus, and so much so that we had a conversation that went on for about six months, and I talked to her, and Max talked to her, and then Max talked to her again, and then I talked to her again, and we all talked to her, and, and she had this problem with refuge. And the problem was, is that when we gathered to worship, people weren't in here, and and, you know, Max and I are like, well, you know, people are running late, people are kids, they want to get their coffee, they're fellowshipping, all this stuff. And she's like, no, 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 you don't get it. We have this opportunity to worship our great God and Savior, to, to sing, to praise him, to give him all the cheer, all the praise that he deserves. And she's like, and it just, it just pains me. Refuge just, I feel like they just don't get it. And still, you know, I was just like, oh, I don't know, you know, maybe not they do, you know, trying to like, I don't know, trying to protect all of you and justify all of you, you know. No, they're great. Uh, you guys are great. And you are. But it was just, it, it stuck out to me yesterday that Christina had this passion for people to get it, for people to really, really know Jesus and to find in Jesus uh, the supremacy of life, of joy, of hope, and, um, and that's what yesterday was about, was celebrating her life and the testimony that she gave and uh, how she came along other people and, and brought them to Jesus. She was a shining light, and we rejoiced in her life. And so we were able to celebrate her, and it was, um, it was probably, I think, besides being in the hospital with uh, our daughter when she was born and her heart surgery, this is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, just emotion-wise and just feeling so raw. Um, but then I would also say that it was the most honoring thing I've ever been asked to do, um, 
to say these final words over my, my dear friend. So um, I have a program from the funeral yesterday. And so if any of you, I know some of you are very near and dear to Christina. So if any of you would like to come and, and see it, it, it's great. Just some, some things that Christina actually put together. And so I have this available and I'd love to share it with you. Um, we said that we are going to be doing some sort of memorial or celebration of life, and uh, we're probably going to push that out a little bit because Rick wants to be here with us to do that. And so we'll be letting you guys know um, when that will be. But yeah, it's going to be not just a memorial, but a celebration of our, of our dear friend who is with Jesus now, and she has been filled up, and she is in his presence, and we, we rejoice in her running her race well and finishing well. So, without further ado, let's get into our teaching this morning. So we're going to look at Luke 24, 13 through 25, so if you'd stand for the reading of God's word. All right, Luke 24, starting in 13. This is probably one of my favorite stories of Jesus found in the Gospels. Um, it's, it's funny, and um, it, there's just so many cool things going on here, so let's, let's read it together. Start my timer for your sake. Here we go. Yep. That very day, so this is the day of Jesus rose from the dead, the day of the resurrection. That very day, two of them, the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're having with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And they said to him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there these days? Jesus said to them, what things? Tell me. It's so good, right? (laughs) And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our leaders, the chief priests and rulers, delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen visions of angels who said, he's alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village 
to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he was going to go further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. This is incredible. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And they said to, excuse me, I I skipped something. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, and they went back to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, so if it's your first time, welcome. We are beginning a new series within our year of biblical literacy, and we're calling this The God I Don't Understand. So remember a while ago I was talking about, hey, we're going to talk about stuff that our culture has a big problem with in the Bible. So this is that series, and there will be more to come in other series as well, but this is really kind of, this is the good stuff. And so if you have neighbors, friends that you've been talking to about the Bible, about Jesus, this is a time to bring them. And it's not like pressure, like you got to get them to church, but this is the stuff that our culture is wondering about and asking about, and we're going we're gonna to handle that stuff in the next, um, the next month. So you guys remember in January when we did our series on the Bible, we talked a bit, of, especially about the Old Testament, having those hard things in it, difficult things for us to get around, and not just culturally, but also theologically, right? Like, so we've got the culture stuff that we're like, man, this is, this is hard, and, and, you know, just Western, secular, enlightened people, like, this is the Bible's really hard, and I don't, I don't know if I can agree with all of this and, and really, you know, get on board with the Bible. So then there's the theological baggage, like, how is this the same God? Like, uh, the Old Testament and New Testament seem inconsistent with one another. And so we mentioned this stuff back then, you know, that it's there. You know, we did a whole study on the problem with the Bible. And at that time, we're reading Genesis, and there's some hairy stories. There's some sordid characters. But if you're doing the year of biblical literacy, you finished Judges. No. Yeah, you finished Judges yesterday, right? And for those of you that finished Judges yesterday, or you've read it before and you're not reading it now, Maybe you'll remember the kind of stuff that's in Judges. And it's like, yeah, Genesis, you think Genesis is bad? Like, you know, this is like Quentin Tarantino, NC-17. This is horrific stuff that we're reading through. We read through Joshua, Judges, not to mention Numbers and Deuteronomy, just some of the commands that are in there. And so you know, right, reading the Old Testament is startling. There is a lot of blood. There is a lot of sex and there is a lot of violence. Uh, I'm not going to talk about sex today, so kids that are in here, like, don't worry. Like, parents, you're good. Um, and so for many reading this for the first time, or maybe the first time in a while, the Bible's disenchanting, and it's disturbing. And remember, like, we talked, like, man, I'm good with Jesus, but man, this is like, this is like that weird, like, West Virginia family that, like, we don't talk about, you know? And like, just leave them out there, and, you know, we'll just live our, you know, Western California life, and we're cool. Um, it's, it's disturbing. It's, it's disenchanting. And remember, we've been saying, this is the story of God. 
This is God's history. This is his story. That's what the Bible is. And so it's no wonder why many Christians want to stick to the New Testament. And, and pastors are even talking about doing away with the teaching or even believing in the Old Testament at all. So now that you've been adequately disturbed by the Bible, we're going to talk about it, right? Now, let me just say this. For some of you, you are settled with the things in the Bible, they don't disturb you. Maybe they did at one time, but you, you've settled with those things. You've, you've worked through these things, and you're like, well, I'm not into this. Like, I don't care. Like, I'm good. I'm God's sovereign. He's good. I know that. And so I don't need to hear studies like this. Well, you actually do. Because if you're a parent, you're going to have kids, and they grow up here in Sonoma County, one of the most liberal, uh, progressive uh, parts of our country, actually third most progressive part of our country uh, after New York and Seattle. So your kids are going to grow up in this culture, and they're going to be challenged by this culture to ask these questions. Uh, not only that, but your neighbor is asking these questions, and even friends of yours in this community here are asking these questions. And so you do need this, and you need to maybe be re-challenged by the Bible. Maybe, might I suggest, that you have simplified things. I think we should be disturbed by the Bible. I think those of us who have strong faith in Jesus and know that God is a God of love and this is a story of redemption, I still think we should be disturbed by the Bible. So, listen up, all of you then, so we can be equipped to help those around us so we can be rechallenged in our faith. Now, for the first time maybe ever, people are leaving the church. No, not just leaving the church not because of spiritual abuse or hypocrisy or any problem that they had with their particular local church community being unloving, unaccepting, but plainly because they could no longer believe in the Bible or the God of the Bible. This really is the first time, uh, and it's kind of been snowballing, but I mean, I hear this again and again and again. I don't have a problem with the church. I have a problem with the Bible. I, don't, I, I love the church, actually, and I, you know, I'm so thankful for my upbringing, a loving, gracious, generous community. My problem is with the Bible. So listen to this. Richard Dawkins has famously said this, and this is where a lot of people are getting some of this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindicative, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Richard Dawkins has quite the vocabulary. Some, in order to reconcile this portrait of God in the Old Testament, portrait of God in the Old Testament, with the God of the New Testament, have gone so far to return to an early church heresy called Marcionism. Marcionism taught that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are actually two different gods. There's one of law and judgment in the Old Testament, and there's one of grace and mercy in the New Testament. Uh, in that way, we don't have to seriously deal with the Old Testament. Maybe just be thankful that isn't your God, right? Just be thankful you are living now. Um, now, though the church condemned this teaching long ago as heresy, which means totally and completely unbiblical, let's be honest just for a second. 
it's not hard to see how someone could get there or why they would want to. When you read through the Old Testament, again, there's just some stuff there where you're like, man, this is really hard to reconcile the God of grace who forgives sinners, who, who welcomes all people into his presence, who doesn't consume us with fire where we stand, and so on and so forth. So, let's be honest, it, it's not that hard to get there. And, again, if there is even an ounce of truth to what Richard Dawkins said about the God of the Old Testament, we're in big trouble. I think that Richard Dawkins' description of the God of the Old Testament is grossly inaccurate, and I hope to prove that or show you that this morning and in the weeks to come. As we've been saying, this is the problem, though, in the church at the moment. Christians are rocked by this stuff and don't know how to answer it, right? We have a biblically illiterate culture that's using the Bible to critique a biblically illiterate church. And most Christians, if anything, have a general understanding of what the Bible teaches. And so they simply ignore these things or try to put them out of their minds. But with the deconstructionist culture of Me Too and Down with the Patriarchy and other mountains like this, you can't do this anymore. You can't just stick your head in the sand and ignore these things. And that is actually a good thing. Because now we're forced back to the Bible and to really ask ourselves, am I going to be a Jesus follower or not? Am I going to be a person of God's word or not? Am I actually going to know what I believe and immerse myself in God's truth or not? And it's time for the church to do that, to recapture the authority and beauty of the scripture and to rediscover the incredible story of God, the most high God who redeems this broken, fallen, rebellious world at the cost of his own life. And then to find our story in that story. And that's what we've been doing this year, right? But so in this series coming up, we'll talk about violence. We will talk about sex. I'll let you know, parents, so your kids can be in their classroom that day. I'll talk about judgment and all the other hard stuff. But I think first we need to simply understand in general what is going on in the Old Testament, right? So we firmly believe that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. So how do we reconcile the two? Or another way to put it is, is the Old Testament, and especially the law of Moses, God's timeless truth, timeless wisdom that is to be heeded and obeyed by all subsequent generations. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, maybe we're asking ourselves the wrong question. Like, are, is it the same God? That's not, the, that's not the question. I think the question, rather, is, is all of Scripture timeless for all people at all times and all places? Timeless truth, timeless wisdom that is to be heeded and obeyed. I'm talking about the all of Scripture, okay? So some speak of the law of Moses as God's standard of righteousness for all time and all people. And the question I want to ask this morning is, is that true? Is that, in fact, what the law is? Is that, in fact, what the Old Testament is? And so I put forward this preface, that the Old Testament preface, this um, hypothesis, there it is. It's an H word instead of an F word. Um, Guys, I am so tired. 
preface does not begin with F. Uh, can I just say, I drove, okay, let's just, let's just pause this for a second. My wife is gone for the weekend, and I am glad she's gone because she's having a wonderful time being refreshed. She's gone for the weekend, just the way things happen. I've got the kids, and we're having a good time, but yesterday I drove 66 miles to San Francisco, got on a two-hour flight, drove 118 miles to Sedona, did a super emotional service, drove 118 miles back to Phoenix, got on a two-hour flight, drove 66 miles home, and I ate a breakfast sandwich in the airport because that's all I had time for because I was literally like down and go, down and go. So if I say F words and P words and every other thing this morning, I'm sorry, this is what you get. Okay, unpause. Uh, So this is the hypothesis that I would like to put before you this morning. The Old Testament is full of wisdom, not Timeless wisdom. So let's talk about this. Well, some of you might be familiar with the Jewish radio talk show host, Dr. Laura. Um, and this was actually on um, West Wing. They, they kind of did a version of this as well. But Dr. Laura, she's a Jew, um, Jewish believer, I guess. She's not a Christian, but, you know, faithful to the Jewish faith. And she helps people sort through their complicated um, Issues of life using the wisdom given in the Old Testament, especially the law of Moses. And so a a fan wrote into her, and and here's what they said. And feel free to to laugh if you like it. It's, It's funny. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show and try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it to be an abomination. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some other elements of God's law and how to follow them. I would like to sell my daughter into slavery. As sanctioned in Exodus 21.7, and in this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Uh, Leviticus 25.44 states that I may indeed possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring nations. So a friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can you clarify, why can't I own Canadians? Leviticus 21.20, that's good, that's good. Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20, or is there some wiggle room here? Now, I know from Leviticus 11, 6 through 8, that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean, but may I still play football if I wear gloves? Last one. My uncle has a farm, and he violates Leviticus 19.19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, cotton, polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them? Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws? I know that you have studied these things extensively and thus enjoy considerable expertise in such matters, so I am confident you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. Your adoring fan, Anonymous. It's funny, right? It's super funny. It's witty. I love it. Um, 
and especially reading them in a row like this. Um, and you think about just like, I mean, this room, we'd all be dead. Like, I mean, I hope you're not sleeping with your in-laws, but um, the pigskin and 2020 and anyway. So let me say it again. The Old Testament is filled with wisdom, not timeless wisdom. He ends with this, or they end with this. Um, thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. God's word is eternal and unchanging. Now, specifically, when, when the scripture talks about the eternal and unchanging word of God, it's talking about God's character and his promises. And a lot of times we take that to mean that, simply, what God said at one point in time applies to all people. And again, this is where it re- it's really important to read the Bible in context. Really important to read the Bible in context. Now, we've been saying that this, the story of the Bible is the story of redemption through grace, right? It's the story of God, and creation to new creation. And we see this theme running throughout the scriptures and repeating itself again and again. After the fall of humanity in the garden, the incursion of the divine beings in Genesis 6, and the rebellion of the Tower of Babel, God began to move toward his plan of redemption promised in Genesis 3. And God, Yahweh, chose Abraham. And Abraham wasn't special. He was a pagan. He was worshiping idols in the Far East. And, you know, he lived near Babylon. He was, he was just a typical resident of Ur of the Chaldees at that time. He wasn't set apart. He wasn't holy. He wasn't God's guy at the time. And God takes him and says, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, I will bless the whole world. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing to the ends of the earth. And talks about his descendants being like the sand and his descendants shining like the stars, right? And this promise is developing in relationship with God. God will, though, bless the whole world, all peoples and all nations through Abraham. And so from here, God confirms it with a covenant. And it's after this and in light of this covenant that through Moses, God gives the people the law, right? Only after he has delivered them from 430 years of slavery in Egypt, God makes a covenant with the people, uh, Abraham's decision. And I think what we have to remember, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but after living in Egypt for 430 years, Abraham's children are more pagan than they are Yahweh's people. They were immersed in Egyptian culture, and we can see that in all the complaints that they make against Moses and the things that they're, the the desires of their heart are Egyptian desires. They're Egyptian narrative and not, they're not God, Yahweh narrative. And so, but God takes these people, makes a covenant with them, and it's after he has redeemed them from slavery, brought them through the Red Sea, and and conquered their enemies, he brings them to Sinai, you remember, and he gives them the law. And the law is the requirements and regulations of the covenant. This is how to live in relationship with God, and this is how to live as God's distinct people in the world, and how to live peaceably with one another. We'll talk about this later more, but it's about God and it's about people. This is really how we can kind of summarize it. In Leviticus, it puts it this way. Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Now, contrary to what we often do with the word holy, uh, it doesn't have all this like pietistic connotations that we put to it. Holy simply means to be dedicated or set apart, and that would really depend upon the thing that you were dedicated to. You were like that thing. You bore a resemblance to it. So 
Literally, Moses is saying to Abraham's ascendants, be different or set apart like Yahweh is different and set apart. There's no other God like Yahweh. There's no other way like Yahweh's way. So be like that. Be like God. And don't be like the nations all around you. So be holy for the Lord your God is holy doesn't mean you need to be extra super religious. What God is trying to do is make them holy in a down-to-earth practicality. And if you read the holiness laws in Leviticus, and they're hard to get through, right? We remember. And some of them are hard to understand. But I think what God is doing, what God is telling them was to be generous with the poor. You see fair treatment and payment to employees. You see practical compassion for the disabled and respect for the elderly. You see the integrity of the judicial process. You see safety precautions. Remember that part about the roof? Like, hey, build your roof this way so your neighbor doesn't like climb on your roof to, you know, I don't know, get something and, and fall through and injure himself or kill himself, right? You, you see safety precautions to prevent endangering life. You see ecological sensitivity. You see laws about provision and protection for ethnic minorities. God is about the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner. He cares for these. You see honesty and trade and business. You see all of all these codes and laws of Leviticus for the people of Israel, you see that they're about relationship. They're about right living. They're about caring for one another and doing things justly. One Old Testament scholar named Christopher Wright in his book, The Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, says this, we call such matters social ethics or human rights, and we think that we are very modern and civilized for doing so. We go to great lengths to get them written pompously into declarations for this and charters for that and codes for something else. God just calls them holiness. God says, this is just being like me. That's all this is. And God says to Israel, be holy, be set apart, be different. And I want to infuse into your nation, into your society... As you're becoming a nation, I want to infuse what I'm like. Generosity. I want you to be generous to the people who are slaves because remember, you were a slave. Remember your slavery? I delivered you and I want fair treatment and payment for employees and I want compassion for disabled and respect for the elderly. Remember? Remember what you came out of? Remember the way the Egyptians treated you? Remember how they treated your sons. You can just imagine how they would have treated the elderly who can no longer build these monuments to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian gods. So God weaves his character, his Exodus 34, 6 through 7 character, the Lord, the Lord, a God of compassion and mercy, a God who forgives a God who is faithful to generation after generation. God sows and weaves this character into this nation. 
So there's actually a lot of wisdom in the Old Testament. And even Jesus, when he's asked about the greatest commandment, he summarized it as loving Yahweh with all of your being and loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus wasn't the first to say this. It was a common understanding of the law at the time. This is what the whole law is about. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something similar. He says, so the way you want others to treat you is the way you should treat others. This is what much of the Bible is about. And I have to admit, when I first studied that passage, when we were doing the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, I was like, what? No, the Bible's about sacrifice. The Bible's about God's glory. And it's like, yeah, it is. But so much of the Bible is just like, hey, just Treat people the way that you would want to be treated. It's really about being neighborly. It's about being human with other humans. It's about being formed into the image of our creator. It's instruction about that. And so there is so much wisdom in the Old Testament, and its application is deep and it's wide. But there is also other wisdom in the Old Testament, and it is not timeless. It is not for all people and for all times. Now that may, maybe, maybe that registers with you, maybe it doesn't. So you think about this like, okay, God's word is timeless and it has all this wisdom and this application for today. And okay, when we take that preface of like God's law and his word is for all people at all time, Answer this. How does Deuteronomy 21 fit into that? You guys want to read it? Of course we do. Can't get enough of your biblical literacy. Cool, let's do it. Deuteronomy 21. Now you know where it is, so I don't even have to tell you anymore, right? You know where it is? Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother for a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. But if You no longer delight in her. You shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, for she, for nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Okay. Timeless wisdom. Anybody doing this? No. Nobody's going down to Mexico and slaughtering people and then taking their daughters. And no, I didn't think so. Okay, good. That's good. Nobody should do this. Okay, good. That's settled. Okay, so this does not sound loving, good, or right. It's abhorrent. It's terrible. (laughs) Wow. Do this, though, for a second. I want you to step back and consider for a moment. In every other culture at the time of Moses, the victor warrior could do whatever he wanted with his captives of war. Rape them kill them, rape them for a season, and then kill them. Rape them for a season and then just throw them away. Make your wife, don't make her your wife. Make your wife, then kill her. I mean, you just do whatever you wanted. It was just property, right? That's the way they viewed it. But here, for 
Yahweh's people, God restricts the rights of the victor warrior. If a man desired a woman, we'll talk about violence and we'll talk about war in the coming weeks, so we don't have time for that this morning. But if a man desired a woman that he found, you know, while they were raiding and taking over other cities, he had to make her his wife. He had to give her all the legal and social status of a wife and a legal marriage. And if he divorced her later, he had to give her all the rights due to her in a divorce. He couldn't sell her. He couldn't just do what he wanted with her. Also, he must not add one more ounce of shame than she has already received. This was so radical for the day and for its time. And here is what we have to understand about many parts of the law in the Old Testament. Okay, you ready? This is really important. So much of the Old Testament law is God accommodating to human brokenness and cultural norms. God accommodates. He meets them where they're at, where they're at culturally, but it's always forward-looking. God doesn't leave them where they're at. He changes things. Now, it might not be the ideal of what we would like to see going on here. Total complementarianism, maybe egalitarianism, depending on where you stand on that, right? We want to see full equal rights. The woman can divorce the husband and this and that, and she can take him as a captive in war and do, you know, like the flip it around, right? Down with the patriarchy. Maybe you want to see that. God's law is accommodating to human brokenness, brokenness and cultural norms, but always forward-looking. It is progressive. The Bible even, even says this. Listen. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, says Moses, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe these carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is so great so wise in understanding. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? And we're like, what? Like, so this is how you take a captive wife, you know? Like, it's a whole nother take on a male bride, right? Like, all the people around you will see how righteous your ways are. Wise, understanding, and righteous. This is what the nations will see. They will be in awe when they observe Israel's customs and law. Remember, David, he says this in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are right. He talks about how it brings wisdom and understanding, bringing light or revelation to us. And then he says this, more to be desired are they than gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. I remember years ago I was reading C.S. Lewis's um, reflections on the Psalms. And he wasn't a you know, biblical scholar by any means, but these were just kind of his own thoughts as he read through the book of Psalms. And, and he took this passage, and this is actually what L Lewis did with it. He said, you know, as I thought more and more and more upon this, 
I thought, wow, David is, he's not looking at the New Testament, he's looking at the law of Moses, and he is saying, this is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. And Lewis said how it was only when he began to study the law of Hammurabi and the laws of the nations surrounding Israel, the Canaanites, and the detestable things that they did. He's like, it's only in that context that someone could actually look at parts of the law of Moses and say, sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. So as modern enlightened, enlightened, trust me, this is what I'm doing with this, right? Progressive, secular Westerners, it's really hard for us to fathom Leviticus as being progressive and forward-thinking, but it was radically so. Uh, A guy named Thomas Cahill wrote a book called uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Anybody read it? Yeah, nice. It's great. It's an incredible book. He also wrote another book called uh, The Gift of the Jews, How a tribe of desert nomads changed the way everyone thinks and feels. Listen to what he says. He says, this long-winded, unwieldy compilation of assorted prescriptions, talking about the law, represents an overall softening, a humanizing of the common law of the ancient Middle East, which easily prescribed a hand not for a hand, but for the theft of a loaf of bread, or for the striking of one's better and which gave much favor to the rights of the nobility and virtually none to the lower class. Remember that scene in the beginning of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, when he's going lo- to lose his hand, or his friend's going to lose his hand, and then you know, he sticks it out there? That was it, right? They, they would shame them. They would cut off these things just to shame people. It was for a loaf of bread, your hand would be cut off. And he talks about here that all the rights were given to the upper class. Lower class people, slaves, had no rights whatsoever. He goes on to say the casual cruelty of other ancient law codes, the cutting off of nose, ears, tongue, lower lip for kissing another man's wife, breast, and testicles is seldom matched in the Torah. Rather, in the prescriptions of Jewish law, we cannot but note a presumption that all people, even slaves, are human, and that all human lives are sacred. The constant bias is in favor, not of the powerful and their possessions, but of the powerless and their poverty. This is incredible stuff. And there is even a frequent enjoinder to sympathy. A sojourner you, shall, you are not to oppress. You yourselves know well the feelings of the sojourner. For sojourners were you in the land of Egypt. This bias toward the underdog is unique, not only in ancient law, but in the whole history of law. However faint our sense of justice may be, insofar as it operates at all, it is still a Jewish sense of justice. How did we get where we are today? How did we get to human rights and civil rights? We got to it from the Bible. That's how we got to it. The belief that all men are created equal. We see the seeds the roots of these things here. Now let me say this. It hasn't been clear yet. The law as a whole was not and is not God's ideal moral code for all people of all time. There are parts of it that are. Rather, God met the Israelites where they were and began to take incremental steps toward his moral ideal. 
The law of Moses was designed to guide a particular nation living in a particular land for a specific time and a specific culture. And God's uh, ideals are in seed form, right? And incrementally instilling his character in his people here. But they find their ultimate ideal, fulfillment and pinnacle in Jesus. That's why we read from Luke 24. It's all making its way to Jesus. And in Jesus, we see the glory of the invisible God. We see what God is really like. We see the full picture in the person of Jesus and not just some divine accommodation that God was doing with Israel. I mean, think about this. God's law through Moses does not outlaw every less than perfect cultural practice. It doesn't. And some of us have a problem with that. And I, it's okay. You can have a problem with that. I'm, yeah. Rather, the law took the practice as it was and improved upon it. I'll give you three examples, and then we'll try to close up. So one example is polygamy, right? It's never forbidden in Scripture. You notice that? And like some of like the, the characters, that like they're, they're the heroes of the Bible. They practice polygamy. Yet, it's not commanded against in the Bible. Yet, I would say this, from the beginning... God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Sarah. Also, not Sarah and Adam and Jacob, right? God made one man and one woman and blessed them, it says. So then why doesn't Scripture just make a command against it? I don't know. (laughs) Instead, Scripture gives us the ideal in Adam and Eve, and then every time we see polygamy practiced in Scripture, whenever, you know, we're, we're brought into the story, you guys notice it always goes bad? Like, I, like, when I read the story of Jacob, I'm like, dude, poor guy. I mean, Jacob's got his own issues, too. But, like, you know, like, the next morning it was Leah and not Rachel. And so then he gets Rachel as well. But then they're, like, you know, they're pimping out their, you know, um, concubines. I don't know. I, don't, I guess they become concubines. They're, you know, handing over their servants. Make babies for me with my servant because I'm barren, you know. And Jacob's got to deal with four wives. And it's just the worst you know, and he comes in from the field one day, and the wife's like, hey, I bought you tonight, so you're mine. You know, it's just like, ugh, it's just so weird. And it goes bad. Rachel and Leah hate each other. And then look at what goes on with the sons of Jacob, the jealousy that is there, and the way that the family falls apart. Of course, God works through all this and redeems it. But every time it's practiced in Scripture, you guys, it's a cautionary tale. Don't Stink and do this, right? David and his wife, Solomon and his marriages, cautionary tales to the nation of Israel. And also to add on to that, by the time we come to the first century, the Jews no longer practice polygamy. So in a way, Scripture is teaching against polygamy, but not necessarily in the way that we would like. Same goes for slavery, The Old Testament law does not condemn slavery outright, and especially in our day and age, people have a big, big problem with this. Slavery absolutely falls short of the Edenic ideal. God creates all people in his image and in his likeness and endows them with dignity, honor, worth. But God deals with a broken world and a broken system. And slavery was part of the ancient societal structures. Yet, God doesn't crush these structures immediately. Rather, he takes incremental steps toward the ideal moral code in which there will be no slavery. And God, through his law, improves the nature of slavery by instilling his people with compassion, 
mercy and humility. If you think about it, and I don't, I didn't really tease this out, but it's interesting to me that God is always after the heart. I mean, even in this, it's like God could have made laws and just like squashed this, but what he wants is the heart. He wants to instill within his people a kind of people that don't just keep the rules, but a kind of people that will live righteously, character of compassion and mercy and humility. Because if we can keep the rule here, but if there's no rule here, then I'm not going to keep it because I don't have to, right? And it doesn't change who I am. It doesn't make me into God's image. Now, let's talk about this a little bit more. Slaves were treated brutally in the ancient world. They weren't even considered human and didn't have any rights, but not so in Israel. The law of Moses humanizes and elevates slaves. Israel's slaves were largely residential domestic workers and could hold high offices in the household and also public affairs. Also, I think it's really important for us to remember that in that day and age, you didn't have, like, landowners who just ruled over the land. The family worked the land together. Husband, wife, sons, daughters, servants, they're all working the land together. So the, you know, the man of the house, they might own the property, but the servant is working alongside the master. It isn't like this like bullwhip type of thing that we're looking at here. It was a family work environment that happened. So you have slaves working on, uh, along with the master. It was not like an American plantation. Everyone worked. And evidence shows that Israel's slaves had more legal rights and protection than any contemporary society. There was protection for runaway slaves. If you knocked out the tooth of your slave or maimed your slave in any way, you had to set them free. This is you have to look at it right. This is an incentive towards nonviolence and fair treatment of slaves. It's like, dude, if you touch your slave, he's gone. Like, don't touch your people. Have some self-control of yourself. This was an incentive to not do those things. Oftentimes we look at like, look at what God's commanding them. You can punch your slave. You can knock out a thief. No, you can't. Saying, don't do this. There are repercussions. There are protections. There are rights. Just like it's like, hey, don't sexually harass your employees. Wait, I can sexually harass my employees? No, don't. There are ramifications for this, right? It's the same kind of thing going on here. Why am I getting excited about that? I don't know. Um, But it's an incentive toward nonviolent treatment. If you killed your slave, you were to be put to death. This is not so in any other society. It's like you killed, it's like, whatever. It's your slave, your property, do whatever you want with it. You could beat your slave, kill your slave without consequence. Also, in other societies, runaway slaves were either killed or sent back to their masters to be killed or beaten to death. Israel had cities that were dedicated to protect these people and to provide for them. And of course, a huge part of this was their history. When they told the story of Israel, they weren't great people. They were people who were slaves They were people who were under a yoke of bondage. They were people who were treated horrifically. And God sowed this reminder into them again and again and again. They were slaves in Egypt. They were rescued by grace. And so this was to form the way they thought and treated their slaves with compassion, mercy, and humility. 
These characteristics were not considered virtues in any of the surrounding cultures. So slavery is awful, of course, and please hear me. I am in no way condoning or justifying it in any way. I'm simply trying to show how God moved in history with sinful, broken people and moved them forward to his ideal in Christ. And it was, in the, it was the doctrines of Genesis 126 and also the New Testament teaching about equality in Christ and this lifting up of people's the casteism being abolished that moved Christians, Christians to abolish slavery. Okay, one more, divorce. Divorce is one of the clearest examples of a divine accommodation and God's incremental improvement upon cultural norms. So remember in Matthew 18, no, Matthew 19, 8, when Jesus is asked about divorce and why God allowed it. Okay, if you like haven't believed me about divine accommodation, you're like, you're liberal, you're out to lunch, you're crazy. Okay, here it is, ready? Are you ready? When Jesus is asked about divorce and why God allowed it, this is what he says. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Is permitting saying like, yes, this is exactly what I want. This is ideal. No, to permit like, all right, fine. I'm going to allow this. And Jesus says, God allowed this because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not this way from the beginning. Again, God meets people where they're at in the culture that they're in, but he brings them forward. Jesus here sought to restore the Edenic ideal of marriage, and this is clear in the New Testament teachings that Jesus is the one who has brought us into the fullness of what the law anticipated and is the restorer of God's creation and purposes. But it's not just the New Testament that tells us that the Old Testament wasn't it wasn't final. Jeremiah himself says it. The Lord speaks and said, The days are coming when I will make a covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And Paul and Jesus and other writers of the New Testament taught that this is what has taken place through the work of Jesus Christ. The law and the Old Testament were like a guardian that were, were watching over us, keeping us under guard, protecting us, restraining sin until Messiah would come and would fulfill all righteousness and bring us into what the law always intended was a new heart and a new mind that would walk in the character of Yahweh himself. That we would actually be holy as the Lord our God is holy. And that we wouldn't just be people that keep the law for keeping the law's sake, but we would be people that go far above and beyond the law because God's spirit and his mind and his humility and mercy and goodness and love and righteousness and justice are a part of who we are. Listen to how Paul talks about this in Romans 13. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding except 
the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul takes the timeless truths out of the Old Testament, specifically the Ten Commandments, and he sums them up in this loving our neighbor as ourself. When we do this, we fulfill all righteousness and the law, what the law intended and pointed to. I guess what I want to do, wanted to do this morning is just show God's consistent character that's clearly stated and seen in both Old Testament and New Testament. He is indeed gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we see this, of course, ultimately displayed in the person and work of Jesus. We see how God, the Son, became a slave, sold into slavery, to be put to death, to free us from the slavery of sin. We see how Jesus was put under the law, and yet he fulfilled all righteousness. Since we are Jesus' people, We are to walk in the fullness of God's moral ethic as seen in him. We're to put on love, the scripture says again and again, which binds all things together. And just as Israel was to be a light to the nations, a witness of the wisdom and character of their God that the nations would marvel at, so now in Christ, it's the same. Remember, Peter says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So just like Israel, you guys, the liberal culture and conservative cultures around us should look at us and say, who is a people like the church of Jesus Christ? A wise and understanding people a people of righteousness that treat people with respect and dignity and value, a people who sacrifice their own provision for the worthless person. That's what the world should see. They should see salt. They should taste salt. They should see light. We are to be this radical difference in the world. It doesn't mean they like us. It doesn't mean that they accept us, but our character and our lives should astound people so that they have to ask themselves, who is Jesus? That he would make people like this. So, just a closing thought on divine accommodation, and then we'll be done. This really is a clear biblical principle, and maybe I'm going to take it a little bit out of context, but We got some rocks out back, and so if you guys want to stone me afterwards, we can find some stuff. Um, But just think about this for a second. Maybe I'm grasping a little bit, but God finds us as we are. God didn't choose me. He didn't rescue and redeem me because he saw some spark of the divine in me. He didn't choose me because... I have a pedigree and a heritage of Christians in my family. He didn't, 
it's, it's none of that stuff. It's no righteousness that I've done. But he chose me, he chose you because he loves us. God loves broken, sinful, screwed up people. The Bible says God finds us as we are and he loves us as we are, but we see clearly that he doesn't leave us as we are. He calls us forward. We call it grace. And I think sometimes we mistake divine accommodation or grace for God's approval of our sin and apathy towards righteousness. It is not. It is not. God has saved you. God has saved me by grace, but he has put a holy calling on our lives that we would live for him that we would proclaim him through our lives and through our character and what we value, the way we do everything should both resonate with and defy the culture in which we find ourselves. We are called to be salt and light of God's true righteousness and justice as seen in Jesus. So next time you want to judge the Old Testament about divine accommodation and say this is BS, just think about how God has divinely accommodated your crap, put up with you, saved you by grace, and has called you with a holy calling to be different. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It is supreme. There is nothing like it, sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. Thank you, Lord, that you meet us as we are. Lord, that there is not a set of requirements to be your people, to be in your family, a part of your kingdom, to receive the pardon of our and forgiveness of our sin, Lord. But Jesus, you gave your life so that anyone who trusts in you might be saved, might be part of your family, might be brought into the story of God. And so, Lord, this morning, we, we praise you and thank you for your divine accommodation and your grace over our lives, Lord. just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come, I come to thee. Lord, we thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, help us then to work within that grace, to put forth that effort, Lord, to become a light to the nations to become holy as the Lord our God is holy and to be infused with your righteousness, Lord, so that our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, Lord, those, Lord, who are in darkness and confusion, Lord, those who are fighting the cultural wars all around us would say, who is like the church showing up for the needs of our city? Who is like the church forgiving the offender, and reconciling the brokenness in our city. Who is like the church to show love and mercy and compassion, and who is like the church to be faithful in all of their covenants and commitments. Lord Jesus, may your faithfulness, may your faithfulness make us faithful, we pray. Amen.